You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Once upon a time, a grandfather took his grandson to the forest to chop wood. On the way, they met a stranger who politely asked if he could accompany them. The grandfather instantly felt suspicious of the stranger. There was something in his eyes that seemed uncanny, as though he were touched by the moon. And although the stranger sang his way along the forest road and chatted cordially with the grandson on serious matters, the grandfather determined to keep a watchful eye in case events should take a darker turn. Throughout the morning, the three men worked at the trees, chopping and hacking logs for the town, and by the time that they were done, the embrace of the afternoon sun had passed along, and the ink of twilight had begun to spread across the sky. Before we journey back to town, the stranger said, why should we all three not rest a while and sleep, for it is far to walk, and already our bones are weary from a day's work. The grandfather and his grandson agreed, and all three men curled up at the foot of an oak and closed their eyes. But in truth, it was only the grandson who truly gave himself over to sleep, for the grandfather only pretended to close his eyes. Presently he saw through his eyelids, which were open just a crack, the stranger who rose and took off his belt. Before the grandfather's eyes, the stranger began to twist and snap sprouting hair from his very skin and long, sharpened teeth which tore their way out from between his lips until he had become a wolf. Raising his nose to the air, he sniffed and then leapt away to where a young horse was grazing. Savagely, the stranger set upon the horse and tore it to shreds, devouring every last inch of its flesh, its bones and its hide and hair. Satisfied with his meal, the stranger returned to the oak and slipped on his belt. As he did so, the teeth between his lips began to retract and the hair upon his skin began to draw back until he was a man again. Silently, he lay down next to the grandfather and grandson and fell to sleep. Later, when they had roused themselves, they made their way back toward the town. The grandfather watched as the stranger talked once more with his grandson, so normally and politely that the grandfather began to wonder how it could have been that such a savage creature resided in the man's hidden places. As they reached the outskirts of the village, the stranger suddenly clutched at his stomach and groaned, I have a bellyache, but I cannot reason why. The grandfather leant in close to the man's ear and said softly, I can well believe you have a bellyache for you are a man whose stomach now contains the flesh, bones, hide and hair of a horse. For a brief moment, a crazed light flashed upon the man's eyes, and he licked his lips. It is fortunate for you, he said, that you waited until now to tell me that you know my secret. If you had done so before we left the forest, I would have torn you and your grandson to shreds. 
And with that, the stranger turned and fled back to the safety of the dark forest, where all creatures are touched by the moon from time to time. The captain's hand reached up towards the knife, but it was too late. His heart had felt the bite of the blade, and its limp pumps were growing dimmer. His eyes began to flutter. He slumped to the floor of the cabin, clutching at the bitter cavity in his chest. Dizzily, his eyes rolled in his head as he felt the life slip out between his fingers and onto the floor. A last flourish, he thought to himself, and then would come the end. He reached up towards the dark before him, a final breath that carried upon it an indistinct plea, perhaps for mercy. The captain's hand crashed to the floor, leaving behind a silence that lingered a little too long. Collective breaths drew themselves into nervous chests and held tight there. The lights began to dissolve, from opposite ends of the stage, the swish of heavy curtains that glided in and met each other at the centre. And then it came, the nervous ripple of unsure applause from the audience that built slowly. The curtains split at the centre to reveal the cast of this drama, including the formerly dead captain, the stain of stage blood still wet at his lips, who smiled with half-masked disappointment at the scatter-filled theatre before him, perforated a little too heavily by empty seats, and led his fellow actors in obeisance, bowing dramatically as the echoed applause rippled around them. The curtains closed once more, and almost as soon as they had, the applause outside died away to nothing, followed by muted murmurs of patrons picking their way from uncomfortable seats. One curtain call, came a voice from the cast, my kid's nativity got three. They shuffled off, not even attempting to keep their voices low, murmuring their dismay to each other, and trying too hard not to meet the eyes of the two men at the wings, who spoke hopefully as each man passed them. You were great out there, and wonderful job were met with indifference. By the time five minutes had passed, the two men had been left in silence, staring out onto the dim stage. It's a good play, Sam, said one of them. I know it, Sam replied. It needs a chance, but that's all. You can't judge these things on the previews. Funny thing, Norbert said. You spend so long raising these things from paper to performance just for one night, so many pegs to put in holes, and also you can sell half the seats to folks you don't like so that they can sleep through the best lines. Sam looked down at his watch. Ten o'clock, he muttered. The bars are still open. Want to grab a drink? Norbert checked his own watch as though he didn't quite believe him. Ten o'clock. Would you look at that? And to think just three hours ago there existed such hope, he chuckled to himself. Let's drink everything. Maybe the hope will return. They stepped out onto a snowy El Molino Avenue and walked in crunches down a sidewalk coated with sugary frost. 
So what now? Norbert asked. Do you think we can open in a different theater? Depends on what the reviews are like, Sam said. Something tells me they're not going to be that enthusiastic. Too bad, said Norbert. I kind of wanted a half-decent notice to stick on my Christmas cards this year. He squinted at the lights of a passing car. I still say it would make a much better movie than a play. Sam sighed. Oh, maybe you're right. I have to admit it's crossed my mind in the last few weeks. Shame, though. They'll kill a lot of the tension, probably want to change all the names. As long as they pay us a king's ransom, then who cares, said Norbert. They reached the door of a bar behind which sang the muted needle of a gramophone, along with a low cocktail of men's voices complaining about the chill in the California air. Norbert pulled open the door and they were greeted by the sight of a brightly lit room full of men. The coat rack near the door was empty. Even alcohol could not warm the men inside enough to make them want to lose their coats. They slid onto two stools and ordered two glasses of Christmas cheer. Seriously, Sam, let's just send it along to all the folks we know. It can't hurt. I'm almost dizzy with trying to think of ways to make this story pay. And like you say, it would make a great movie. We'll run up a few copies and start sending it out tomorrow, Sam smiled. He held up his glass. Norbert touched it with his own. To a man and his shadow, said Sam. A man and his shadow, Norbert agreed. And may all your Christmases be Among the RKO contract players, Val Luton had become something of a legend. Character actors who'd seen their fortunes fade throughout the 30s and who'd been assigned to supporting roles and bit parts with the onset of the 40s were suddenly seeing their considerable experience being put to good use. Lou Lubin, who up until now had been cast as comic criminals in films such as Shadow of the Thin Man, and Butch Minds the Baby, due to his short stature and thick urban accent, found himself being sought for more dramatic fare after appearing as the ill-fated Mr. August, the private detective who investigates a den of Greenwich Village devil worshippers in Luton's The Seventh Victim. Ben Bard had begun life in vaudeville and during the 1920s had been considered one of Hollywood's brightest up-and-coming talents. Deciding that his skills as an actor could be of more use behind the camera than in front of it, he'd opened the Ben Bard Drama School in Hollywood, hoping to nurture young actors keen to hone their craft. By the end of the 30s, however, the school was broke, and Ben Bard's career as an actor was almost forgotten. A role in Luton's The Leopard Man as Police Chief Robles, and in The Seventh Victim as Mr. Brune, the leading Satan worshipper, had reversed his fortunes to such an extent that he would find himself re-evaluated by the Hollywood industry. He would eventually become the head of the new talent department at 20th Century Fox Studios, and the Ben Bard Drama School would find itself reopened to greater success. The RKO B-movie division had once been the place where careers went to die. 
But under Val Luton's guidance, a career in its twilight years could find new energy. Faces often glimpsed in the backgrounds of comedies or pulp thrillers were being brought to the front of the action, were being given their own close-ups and moments of importance. These actors were being allowed to act. Being called up to star in a Val Luton film was akin to being cast in Shakespeare. Rival studios were by now convinced that they'd cracked the so-called Luton formula and were beginning to release their own takes on Luton's horror movies, hoping to emulate the profits being scored by RKO. You don't like this place? And I don't like this place. What are we waiting for? My Aunt Nana Beulah, she won't give me the money to go north. I'm getting out of here. If I have to walk, I hate this place. And I don't like what's going on here lately. What's going on here lately? You'll find out soon enough. What will I find out? You'll see with your own eyes. What will I see? Things walking. Ain't got no business walking. What thing? You want to see? Now, wait I'll a minute. I'll show you. Wait a minute, honey. I don't insist in seeing nothing. Wait a minute. Over on Poverty Row, Monogram Pictures, hoping to cash in on the success of I Walked with a Zombie, had released Revenge of the Zombies, which began promisingly, with a scientist preserving his deceased wife as a zombie. But the creative minds of Monogram could not resist slipping into more sensational fare, and over the course of its running time, the film slowly transforms into a pulp thriller, including Nazi agents, sinister servants, and comic sidekicks. Columbia got a little closer to the Luton formula with their dour thriller, Cry of the Werewolf, which sees a Romany princess trying to protect the burial location of her ancestor by employing her cursed ability to transform into a wolf. The film contained all the main ingredients of Luton's cat people, but used them in a far more sensational story, which suffered as a result. Paramount Pictures seemed to get closest to the Luton formula with their supernatural thriller, The Uninvited, starring Ray Milland as a composer who takes up residence in an abandoned house on the coast of Cornwall, only to find that it's haunted by a malevolent spirit. The film's director, Lewis Allen, seemed completely in tune with Luton's game plan, setting his story in a relatively contemporary world and allowing his chills to seep in slowly from the edges, instead of declaring each shock with a crash of thunder and a stab of fiercely orchestrated music. But perhaps the most surprising of all was the reaction from Universal Studios, who had, in the preceding decade, introduced the horror movie to mainstream cinema, perfected it as a standalone genre, and then gradually diluted it almost to the point of parody. The 1930s had seen them in creative overload, with movies such as Frankenstein, Dracula, The Invisible Man, The Mummy, The Black Cat, and The Bride of Frankenstein defining and redefining the rules of horror cinema. Since the departure of the studio's founder, Carl Lemley, in 1936, however, the standards set during the early days had gradually begun to slip, as movies there began to be made by committee. The monsters of the glory days were now being herded into numerous sequels and so-called monster rallies, the first of which, Frankenstein Meets the Wolfman, had been released to huge box office even if the critical response and subsequent word of mouth had been less than kind. For Universal, it was by now impossible to deny the impact that Val Luton's brand of horror was having upon the world. Stumbling beasts and foggy moors were looking dated next to Luton's modern cities overcast by shadows. Besides which, 
The cost of gothic sets and hours in a makeup chair were becoming prohibitive for a series of horror features that were sometimes barely scraping back their budgets. Their response was to purchase the screen rights to the popular Inner Sanctum stories, a line of pulp mysteries, sometimes with supernatural overtones, that had begun in print under Simon & Schuster and which had translated with great success to radio since 1941. These were quieter tales, less reliant on hammy monsters and more dependent on sinister riddles at their heart. This is the inner sanctum, a strange, fantastic world, controlled by a mass of living, pulsating flesh, the mind. It destroys, distorts, creates monsters, commits murder. Yes, even you, without knowing, can commit murder. The first of these movies, Calling Dr. Death, starred Universal's biggest star at the time, Lon Chaney Jr., as a neurologist who may or may not be responsible for the murder of his faithless wife after suffering a mental blackout. Under the direction of Reginald LeBorg, one of Universal's pulpier talents, the film stood quite apart from their current spate of monster sequels by employing at its heart a dark little mystery surrounding a rather gruesome murder and featuring a neat series of stylish touches, such as a first-person sequence and a persistent inner monologue from Cheney's doctor, used a little too often, in order to establish doubt in the mind of the audience. Saturday afternoon, Sunday. Where was I? I've got to recall. I left the house, got into the car, I drove, drove. The resulting movie was hardly worthy of being held up against Luton's artistry, but it was, if nothing else, a brave attempt to legitimize horror cinema within the walls of Universal by straying a little closer to the Luton formula. It was followed by five more movies in the series, Weird Woman, Dead Man's Eyes, The Frozen Ghost, Strange Confession, and last but certainly not least, the gloriously titled Pillow of Death, by which time the effort being poured into the film's storylines was almost equal to the effort being poured into dreaming up their titles, and the Inner Sanctum films disappeared quietly into obscurity. It was strange then that despite the Hollywood industry at large being so firmly set upon a course of imitating the style of Val Luton, that he should have been all but ordered by his boss, Lou Ostro, to imitate that most ridiculed of Universal's horror categories, the Monster Rally. The project proposed was They Creep by Night, a film that promised a heady blend of cat people, zombies, leopard men, batmen, and blood curdlers by the dozen. It mattered little to Ostro that the cat people in Luton's film had been Serbian immigrants struggling against the curse that saw them transform only if they gave in to their sexual desires. That the zombies in I Walked with a Zombie had been completely dependent on the whims of the Homefort cult on the island of San Sebastian. That the only actual leopard man in the film of the same name was a sideshow entertainer named Charlie and that there'd never been a Batman or a Man-Bat in any Luton film so far. In the face of such ignorance, one wonders if Ostro had actually even seen the films that had resurrected his studio. 
But such concerns were alien to Lou Ostro, a man to whom all that mattered was the marketing. He'd attempted to steer Luton towards the Universal Horror Formula four times by supplying him with pulp titles for his films, and had been thwarted each time by the ingenuity of Luton and his team, who turned the trashiest of titles into brooding chillers of infinite depth. But with They Creep by Night, it seemed as though Ostro may have finally gained the upper hand. For almost a fortnight, Ruth Luton had watched her husband throw himself against the idea in the vain hope that he could once again turn something hopeless into something wonderful. But each time, the concept had beaten him into surrender. She regarded him as he stumbled once more out of his office, his face loose and milked of color. Nina and Val Jr., who'd set up an art studio of sorts at the kitchen table, were told to play outside while the sun was still out. They left behind a battlefield of paper and crayons and water paints and milk-stained drinking glasses. Ruth began to shuffle them into some sort of order and then gave up in despair. Her husband was slumped in his armchair and frowning through closed eyes. The look either meant that he was in deep thought or wrestling with a headache. A soft grunt and a wince told her that it was more likely the latter. Do you need an aspirin, she said. He grunted again and shook his head. Why don't you sleep? You can't write while you're asleep, he growled. Can't write when you're dead either, she said. Luton smiled. It's in here somewhere, he said, tapping his head. It's like... Staring into a pond and trying to see all the fish at once. You wait long enough and all the little ideas swim up towards each other. And this is the worst metaphor I've ever heard, Ruth said. Seriously, I didn't realize things had gotten so desperate. The last few days have all been like this, he grunted. No wonder you have a headache, she said. Do you want a drink? He shook his head. Do you want a story? His eyes flicked open. What kind of story? I just thought perhaps I could come up with a story you could use, she shrugged. For a horror movie? Well, I'm all ears. Ruth grinned and folded her arms. It's 1927. We're at New York, Grand Central and Skidmore College. Val frowned and then smiled. What's the name of this story? Ruth smirked. It's called... A letter. The author? Stubborn idiot. You wouldn't know him. He smiled again. Are there any scenic features? Nothing but Ruthie's sweetly pointed little nose, she said with a twinkle. Anyway, picture a boy, forlorn and lonely in his college room, probably near death. He hasn't eaten because he's too much in love. That doesn't sound like any college boy I've ever met. Shh, said Ruth. The author... Very sad at having to part with his beloved, awaits anxiously the time when he may again see her, for she is very lovely. Ruth fluttered her eyelids and blushed. He desires to write a longer letter, but as it's necessary for him to earn some money, he's forced to labor and write a six-page synopsis of the Temple Murder, a book so dull he fell asleep four times while attempting to read it. Luton stood from the chair and took Ruth into his arms. 
The author assures his dearly beloved sweetheart of his continued love, he said softly. In a postscript, he again assures her of his love and tells her how very beautiful she seems to him. A series of curious cross-like hieroglyphics follow his signature. He smiled and kissed her lips twice. Not suitable for a motion picture, she whispered. A sincere and... She hesitated and then giggled. Flinging him aside, she opened a small drawer in a desk near the wall and after a moment's search, drew from it a yellowed paper, which she opened carefully. A sincere and moving love letter, she read aloud with a laugh. Although brief and poorly written, the author's knowledge of spelling could be better. I can't believe you kept that thing, he said. I keep them all, she smiled, dropping it carefully back into the drawer. All the little pieces of you that arrive in the mail. The letters from Val Lutente's wife had become less frequent in recent years. These days she had to make do with only five or so a week. Back in his college days, Luton would pen sometimes up to three letters a day to Ruthie Knapp, much to the chagrin of her parents. All these letters had been kept and filed along with the new editions, which still arrived with such frequency that Val himself sometimes scooped them up from the doormat and handed them to his wife. Along with prospective new story ideas, including the aforementioned tale of a writer composing a letter about Ruthie's sweetly pointed nose, the desk drawers were filled with multi-page letters, specially composed poetry dedicated to Ruth's name, to each part of her body, to her voice. Lengthy sonnets declaring in iambic pentameter the depths of his feelings when considering his love for her. When it came to composing scripts and stories, Luton's hands would sometimes fall still, much as they had done that day. But when it came to transcribing his innermost feelings for Ruth, his pen never ran dry. Dearest Ruth, in the three days that you have been gone, Spring has come to Dachinka. Walking toward the well today, I found a crocus, half unfurled, like a globule of butter, it seemed. So golden yellow in the new green of the grass. Even as I write this with the window wide open, a robin perched in the biggest elm tree is tentatively experimenting with a few vernal chirps. He will not burst into full song until you are home. My dearest Ruth, whose brown hair is like a scarf of silk brought from the rulers of Cathay, and when that scarf is wrapped about my eyes, the glamour and discord of this earth depart from me, and I dwell in the peace of heaven. Dearest Ruthie, and you are dear, so very, very dear to me. This is Lincoln's birthday, sweetheart, and I'm scared to death that I won't be able to buy a special delivery stamp. Darling, the minstrel Val de Valois, long returned from the courts of Fairyland, selleth his old charger and battered armor and liveth like an anchorite, devoting his days to labor, exchanging his lute and prose for a quill pen. He hath become enamored of the maiden Ruth, and to her he writes these letters. Return to me, 
Who loves you, Ruth? Val. I love you, little foxy face. Val. Your most devoted lover. Val. Missile speed to her white hand. Val. They watched as Nina sped past the door, just the merest flash of her, followed by the brief sight of Val Jr. growling like a bear. She's too much like you, said Ruth. In what way? She never does as she's told, smiled Ruth. Plus, she hates asparagus. She does have my blood, Val said. Literally. Instinctively, he felt a memory pain in the crook of his arm and saw the sight of his blood travelling slowly down a tube towards a gasping baby on a trolley. He recalled the relief he felt as she began to cry for the first time. Remember the letter she wrote to your mother? Ruth said. She opened a different drawer and shuffled through it for a moment. She returned with a piece of paper and handed it to him. It was typed, but signed at the bottom in Nina's six-year-old handwriting, carefully neat and sloping down towards the bottom right of the page. Gamma Loon, it began. It's so nice out here that I wish you would be here. I swimmed in the deep water, and I swimmed in the waves. I ride on the ponies and on the merry-go-round. I go to school at Mrs. Buckley's house. Polly and Sophie and Isabella are my friends. I like school very much. I can't learn any French. Here are some more friends. Sandy and Grady and Billy and Donald. Roxbury Avenue is where Sandy lives. Love to Gamma. Nina. <laughs> Why didn't we ever send this to Mother? Val grinned. Don't you remember? Ruth said. You told her all about the magic post box in the tree when you were a little boy, and she tried it too. We didn't find the letter there until a year had gone by. The tree had been one of many on the Hooterog farm belonging to Aunt Nazimova. As a boy, Luton had believed that any letter posted in the yawning hole in the tree's trunk would find its way by enchanted means to the address on the envelope. As to how he'd come to believe this fairy tale himself, he could not say. It was, perhaps, one of those glimpses of folklore that he told himself so often until it had become real. The fairy tale had been exposed as just that quite early in his own youth when he posted the invitations to his sister's birthday party there. Patiently, the family had waited on the chosen Saturday, growing more and more heartbroken as it became clear that no guests were arriving. The young Val had led them, sobbing, to the hole in the tree, where the stack of neatly packed party invitations was found still tied in a red ribbon. Years later, it was Nina's letter to Luton's mother, that was discovered in the hole, a little worse for wear having withstood a year in the elements. Oh my God, Luton said quietly. I think I have an idea. Tell me, Ruth said. Luton held up Nina's letter. They want more cats, he said. That's what this whole thing is about. The monster rally, the zombies, they don't care about zombies. Leopard men were never even a thing. It's all about the cats. Cat people was the one that made all the money. Cat people is the one they want again. They want 
more cats. He stood up and grinned. So I'll give them what they want. Go to work, Ruth said. He grasped her hands and kissed her hard on the cheek, then hurried towards his office. Before you go, she called. The fishes in the pond, I need to know. The fishes in the pond will all swim up together and what? Luton fixed his eyes on hers and smiled. How the hell should I know? It's a terrible metaphor. As it turned out, Charles Kerner had been having doubts over They Creep by Night anyway. Usually, Luton had taken the titles given to him and within a week had returned with a complete story and a shooting date ready to go. But it had been almost two months by now, and Kerner was getting worried. It didn't help that Luton's RKO horror formula seemed to be working for rival studios at that moment, or that RKO hadn't even got a horror movie in pre-production. The last thing he wanted was for Val Luton's momentum to grind to a halt, or for his studio's horror formula to start earning windfalls for his rivals. Therefore, when Luton arrived at his office and told him in no uncertain terms that he couldn't make They Creep by Night work, he was bitterly disappointed. The disappointment was lifted almost immediately when Luton excitedly told him that he did, however, have an idea for a Cat People sequel. But Kerner was even more surprised when Luton outlined the story, which would pick up after the events of the first film and follow Oliver and Alice as they raised their daughter, Amy. So, will the little girl turn out to be a cat monster, said Kerner. Was Irena her real mother? Irena and Oliver never had sex, Charles. That was the central issue in the first film, remember? Right. It's very difficult to fall pregnant without having sex, said Luton. I don't know if you knew that. I was taught by Rabbi Ginsberg, said Kerner. I didn't know how babies were made until I was 26, so is Alice a cat monster? No, Alice isn't a cat monster. Kerner frowned. So who is the cat monster? Irena is the cat monster, said Luton. He began to pace. Irena will be coming back. She died, right? frowned Kerner. I'm thinking of the right film, aren't I? She died, yes, said Luton. But Charles, I know how to bring her back. This is going to be a straight sequel, said Kerner. Yes, said Luton. We'll be able to market it as a sequel, right? Yes. You have to promise me, said Kerner. I promise. Go and do it. Write it. Get it moving. I want the original stars, though. That's a stipulation. People won't believe it's a sequel unless we get Simone Simon, Kent Smith, and Jane Randolph back. Who's going to tell Ostro, said Luton. I'll tell him, said Kerner. You'd enjoy it too much. The month was May, and Luton immediately flew into writing the script for the film, nervously aware that Charles Kerner had not yet assigned a title to the project. Happily, he worked for almost a week, setting in place the basic outline of the story and sending word out through his secretary to the various members of his department. The next project was on. The fires of inspiration were dampened somewhat by the news that while Jane Randolph was available for filming in a few weeks' time, both Kent Smith and Simone Simon were unavailable until later in the year. Kent Smith, fresh from the box office success of both Cat People in 1942 and the hugely popular Hitler's Children from January of 1943, was now in much demand. His next two films would be This Land is Mine and Three Russian Girls, and he would not be available until October. 
Simon Simon had just finished Tahiti Honey and was taking a break until the summer was over. The news was relayed to Charles Kerner, and Luton took his foot off the accelerator, relieved at the opportunity to take his time for once. But the feeling of relief did not last. The first bulletin to disrupt Val Luton's serenity was the news that Furious had been overruled one too many times. B-movie division boss Lou Ostro, the man against whom Val Luton had clashed repeatedly since arriving at RKO, had decided that enough was enough. Ostro had packed up his office and was moving on to pastures new and was taking his pet project, They Creep by Night, with him although how he quite expected to use RKO's stable of monsters in a rival studio's movies without being sued was anyone's guess. In any event, the movie never materialised. Luton was both elated and dismayed to hear that his nemesis had relocated. Ostro's vision had never coincided with his own, but he made every day at RKO interesting at least. He was to be replaced by Sid Rogel, who'd made his name over at Columbia under Harry Cohn. Luton had heard nothing but good things about Rogel. He had a reputation as a man who liked his films to come in on time and under budget, but then so did Luton himself. The second dispatch to disturb his retreat into creativity was an abrupt order from Charles Kerner which arrived one morning and which read simply, Can't waste a whole summer waiting for stars to be available. The grass grows long under our feet, Val. You have three months to make a new movie before work begins on the Cat People sequel. So you want me to make a new movie while I'm waiting to make a new movie? You have a team, Val. Delegate. Write them a story and send them off to work. You're not a one-man band, and we can't have three months of dead air. Universal is turning out a horror movie every month. It's not a five-minute process, Charles. I don't even have another idea yet. Okay. Here's your idea. You ever see a movie called Pacific Liner? Is that the one about the ship full of disease victims? Right. Lou Landers had a ship set built by Van Nest Polglaze. Beautiful job. It's still standing. Write a story set on a boat. A scary story. Call it The Ghost Ship. There's your idea. Why do you hate me, Charles? Hate you? <laughs> You're my boy, Val. You can do anything. God... Who else could I trust with a shitty task like this? Indeed, if it hadn't been for the artistry employed by famed production designer Van Nest Polglaze, then Val Luton could have found himself with rather a different idea offered. The ship set had been left standing in an RKO soundstage since 1938, when Paul Glaze had lovingly built it for Lou Landers' sleeper hit Pacific Liner, the story of a sea captain who must guide his ship to safety against all the odds after his passengers and crew are struck down by a cholera epidemic. Despite its relatively low budget, Paul Glaze, most famous for his work in designing the look of the Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers movies during the 30s, had created a surprisingly lavish set for the crew to work with, complete with art deco trimmings. When production on Pacific Liner was over, the studio couldn't bear to dismantle his work, and even though the subject of what to do with the damn boat had come up regularly, no RKO executive had the heart to turn it into firewood. Luton arrived with his director of choice, Mark Robeson, and his favourite cinematographer, Nicholas Musaraka, and spent several hours walking around the set in search of inspiration. So what's it called? 
The phantom ship, said Musaraka. The ghost ship, Luton groaned. Pretty straightforward then, right? sighed Robson. Ship gets haunted by a ghost? You'd think so, wouldn't you? said Luton. Robson and Musaraka exchanged frowns. You're going to have a ghost though, right? said Robson. Nope, said Luton. How can you make a movie called The Ghost Ship if you don't have a ghost? said Musaraka. Charles didn't say this film would be called The Ghost on the Ship, or The Ship with the Ghost on it, Luton said. He said he wanted the name to be The Ghost Ship. He winked at them. You boys just have to think bigger. If Luton's idea for the story of the ghost ship came off, he could not only preserve his so far spotless record for subverting the pulp title he'd been given, but also take a swipe at the hierarchy of RKO that had so far done so much to thwart and coerce his artistic intentions. Luton's tale would not be concerned with some avenging spirit that haunted the decks of a lonely ship, but rather with the effects of a ship's captain gone mad and the corrosive influence of an unsuitable mind in charge of a body of men. It was while in these early stages of story planning that Luton's office itself was being reorganized by his secretary, Werner de Motz, who'd become increasingly irritated by the labyrinth of paper stacks taking up floor space in not just Luton's office, but her own. Story ideas, correspondence, journals, reviews, diaries, minutes from meetings, reports, and accounts had all been accumulating for months, and the situation was growing desperate. She clambered across the piles of paper one morning and into Luton's presence, as he tapped furiously away on his typewriter and demanded to know what was to be done. Mr. Luton, I'm here to tell you that we either get rid of some of this junk or we move to a nice big warehouse somewhere. Come on, Werner, the mess isn't that bad. I'll tell you how bad the mess is, she said. I have to put my hiking boots on or I'll never get out to lunch. If I wear heels, I end up spiking waste paper on them like a park keeper. He typed for a moment more and then looked up at her. So throw some of it away. Clear for yourself a path, Werner, dearest. Thank you, she said, throwing up her hands. Finally, a clean ship. For the next week... Dictation, filing, and reception duties were put to one side while Werner de Motz blew like a hurricane through the Luton trash pile that had accumulated in his offices. I have reports here on expenditure for costumes on cat people, she said. Send them to accounts, he mumbled as he typed. Memos from meeting regarding casting on the seventh victim. Throw them. Receipts for building materials on I Walked With a Zombie. Accounts. Memo from David O. Selznick. <laughs> Use as replacement brick to hold open front door. And this pile, she said, drumming her fingers on a pile of thick brown packages that stood almost as high as her shoulder. She waited until he looked up at it with questioning eyes. What is that pile, Werner? This pile, Mr. Luton, is made up entirely of unsolicited scripts. From who? From every wannabe screenwriter in goddamn America, she sighed, rolling her eyes. She took one from the top and opened it. Out slid a thick sheaf of papers from which she read the title. Four Crazy Vampires, 
by Franklin Norris. Luton smiled. Werner opened the next one. Lieutenant of Hell by Percy Sylvester. Sounds like one of Ostro's, said Luton. A Man and His Shadow by Samuel R. Golding and Norbert Faulkner. Sounds very highbrow, Luton said. Do they have return addresses? They all do. Then send them all back, he commanded. And trouble me no further today, Mr. Motts. I have a ship of my own to steer. Hours later, when he'd finished typing for the day, he would look up and see for the first time in many months the walls of his own office which were no longer hidden behind piles of papers and envelopes. There was a newfound atmosphere of organization in the room and a sense of peace that came only with the sight of a life well-ordered. He made a mental note to give Werner de Motz a raise in salary and left for the evening, feeling somewhat elated at not just the orderliness of his working environment, but also at the progress made on the story for the ghost ship. What he could not have known, however, is that earlier that day he had inadvertently made the costliest decision of his career. On August the 3rd, the eye of Nicholas Musaraka's camera was opened under the direction of Mark Robeson. Luton's story, refined by Leo Mittler, turned into a screenplay by Donald Henderson Clark, and rewritten once more for good measure by Val Luton himself, had confounded everyone. It follows the fortunes of young Tom Merriam, a merchant marine officer hired as the new third officer on the freight ship, the Altair. Thank you, sir. Thank you, sir. If it's the Altair you're boarding, sir, she's a bad ship. You've got a blind man's tricks for telling what men are like, but ships, you can't tell about ships. The captain of the ship, Will Stone, is at first a guiding fatherly figure to Merriam eager to see to it that the men beneath him are contented and well provided for, but insisting upon a level of discipline and respect that soon begins to manifest itself in increasingly disturbing ways. Do you remember the first day you came into my office? Only vaguely. I told you you had no right to kill that moth, because its safety did not depend on you. But I have the right to do what I want with the crew, because their safety does depend on me. I stand ready any hour of the day or night to give my life for their safety, and for the safety of this vessel. And because I do, I have certain rights of risk over them. Captain Stone first tells Merriam not to secure a large free-hanging cargo hook for fear that it will damage the new paintwork if it should strike the ship. When a violent storm erupts, the hook begins to swing dangerously around the deck, endangering the lives of the crew and causing damage to the ship. Merriam is then blamed for the damage by Captain Stone, who tells him that in this instance, he should have disobeyed his order. You're thinking about the hook. You made up your mind that I was negligent. That's about it, isn't it? Yes, sir, I was thinking that. But you've no right to think that, you know. The responsibility is yours. Mine? I don't see that, sir. I warned you about the hook. I told you twice about it. Exactly. You almost forced me in a position where I had to show my authority, even though it put me in the wrong. One of the crewmen, Louis, who complains to the captain that the ship is sailing short-handed, is mysteriously locked into the anchor chamber 
and is crushed to death when the giant steel chain is drawn in from the water. Suspecting that Captain Stone's pathological desire for unquestioning respect has driven him to murder Louis, Merriam requests an inquiry into the sanity of Captain Stone, where each of the crewmen, oblivious to the corroding mind of their leader, all testify to his good sense and soundness of mind, leaving Merriam in disgrace. Merriam, now fearing that the captain will murder him for his insubordination, quits the Altair, but through a series of contrivances, finds himself on the ship when it puts out to sea, and now at the mercy of the insane Captain Stone, whose authority seems absolute. The pivotal role of Captain Stone was given to veteran actor Richard Dix, one of only a handful of actors to have successfully made the jump from silent films to sound. His career had been a long and steady one, and he'd made appearances in not just respectable fare, such as the top-billed role in 1931's Best Picture winner Cimarron, but also genre hits such as 1938 crime thriller Blind Alibi, in which his co-star was Ace the Wonder Dog. By 1943, his career was slowing to its natural end. Dix was spending more and more time at his ranch, where he found a piece of the countryside infinitely more agreeable than, as he liked to call it, the chaos and hustle of Hollywood. Considering that his ranch included almost 5,000 chickens and 36 dogs, Hollywood must have been a chaotic place indeed. The Ghost Ship, on paper a standard thriller with a low budget, nevertheless captured Dix's waning attention enough to inspire from him one of his greatest performances, as the man driven mad by his own principles. His portrayal of Captain Stone would end up being the one for which he's best remembered, and rightly so. Joining him in the cast were Val Luton regulars Edith Barrett, who played the Doctor in I Walked with a Zombie, Ben Bard, otherwise known as Police Chief Robles in The Leopard Man, and returning for another song, Sir Lancelot as crewman Billy Rad, who managed to sneak in among the gloom a few welcome bursts of calypso music. Filming began, with Luton leaving much of the day-to-day -day running of the film set to Mark Robson so that he could concentrate on his script for the upcoming Cat People sequel. But true to form, the game plan found itself rudely disrupted by the RKO front office, this time in the form of new B-movie division boss Sid Rogel. Tom Conway, who was in the middle of filming The Falcon in Hollywood at the time, had dropped over to the ghost ship set to visit his friends. Rogel's a fiend, he told Luton and Robeson. The Falcon in Hollywood is running two days late because our director, Gordon Douglas, had the flu. Two days isn't that bad, said Robeson. Rogel seems to think so, said Conway. He doesn't like films that run behind. He stamped across the set this morning and tore the script out of poor Gordon's hands. Then he ripped out about a quarter of it and handed it back to him. There, he said. Now you're two days ahead. Luton and Robeson were the next to feel the overbearing hand of Sid Rogel, who seemed to materialize out of thin air one morning as the famous cargo hook sequence was being filmed. Through skeptical eyes he watched, his thin lips pursed, his wiry arms folded at his chest, 
As the hook swung across the set like a pendulum, the men below feigning terror and dropping to their bellies on the ship's deck. Luton watched Rogel's eyes as they drifted from left to right following the hook and chuckled to himself. Silently, he crossed the floor and cleared his throat. You know, he said in a low voice, you look like a very grumpy fan at a tennis match. Rogel's eyes swung towards him and remained there. They glanced down towards Luton's feet and scanned slowly upwards, perceiving his entirety with unashamed malevolence until they met his. Luton felt himself shiver. How much is this scene costing us? Rogel growled. I ran out of zeros, Luton said. From behind him somewhere, Robeson called cut, and the men on the set began to drift towards chairs and their cigarettes. Hey, Mark, called Luton. How much is the hook scene costing RKO? Two million or three million? Ten million, called Robeson. We're overcharging them so we can buy ourselves racehorses, remember? Luton grinned and turned his attention back to Rogel, whose face remained a mask of purest contempt. Funny guy, Rogel mumbled. You're Val Luton, then. And you must be Sid Rogel, Luton said, holding out a hand. Rogel's eyes flicked down at Luton's hand for a moment, but his arms remained crossed. I was warned about you, Rogel said. The man with the creative mind. Luton frowned and dropped his hand. I'm also known as the man who saved the studio from bankruptcy, but my friends call me Val. Rogel raised an eyebrow and glanced at the hook, which had been tamed and brought to a halt. The ghost ship, Rogel said. I suppose the ghost is the one that makes the hook swing. Um, yes, that's... uh, that's what happens. How much do you know about psychic phenomena? Rogel said. I get by. I have very definite ideas about the supernatural, Rogel drawled. I do so hate to see it mocked. Well, I shouldn't worry too much, said Luton. It is only a story after all. Well, I wouldn't want to allocate any extra budgets or time to a project which did not present the paranormal in a serious way, Rogel said. Which is why, said Luton, we have a technical advisor coming to help us in that regard. A technical advisor, Rogel said, for a supernatural film. He considered for a moment and then said, money well spent at last, and look forward to meeting him. He looked at the set over one more time and then walked slowly away towards the studio door. Robeson joined Luton and watched him leave. Everything all right? I need to find a supernatural expert to act as a technical advisor for a few days. Any ideas? Robeson thought for a moment. There's a small place in Los Angeles, the Church of the Inner Voice. The guy who runs it is pretty wacko. Claims to be an expert on psychic phenomena. He'll do, said Luton. I'll try and get him here tomorrow. He looked nervously at the door through which Rogel had left a few moments before and said softly, I may have to start wearing my favorite tie again soon. The following day, a dispatch was sent to the Church of the Inner Voice to ask the pastor there if he was available for a few days paid consultancy work on the subject of authentic psychic phenomena. 
The invitation was duly accepted, and come the evening, Val Luton and Mark Robson found themselves face to face with their new consultant. He was dressed in a black tuxedo, which bore dark sequins along the lapels. At his neck, a tightly knotted bow tie that forced his chin haughtily into the air. This vision of gaudy elegance was topped off by a whip of white blonde hair, curled with panache along his forehead. Theatrically, the man took a bow and then extended his hand. Gentlemen, he said, I am the pastor of the Church of the Inner Voice. I believe you sent for me. Luton and Robson exchanged looks. Nice to meet you, Luton said. Mr... My name is Charles Jaron King, the man said with a twinkle. But you may call me... Criswell. By 1943, Jaron King, otherwise known as Jaron Koenig, otherwise known as Charles Criswell King, but most famously known as simply Criswell, had enjoyed a multitude of careers. After leaving college, he'd worked for newspapers, had dabbled in acting, had worked as a writer for both publications and for the stage, and every time he was between careers, which was often, he always returned back to the family home in Princeton, Indiana, to help out at the family business, a funeral home that catered for the dearly departed of Princeton. It was here that Criswell developed his affinity for the morbid, even going so far as to use a particularly comfortable velvet-lined casket as his bed. Being so close to death on a daily basis had, as he would later attest, unlocked some hitherto unrealized part of his psyche enabling him to communicate with a plane of existence unavailable to the normal human mind. His latest stab at a career path was as the self-appointed pastor of the Church of the Inner Voice, an establishment he'd founded in the cheaper section of Los Angeles, where he held court three times a week, promising his small congregation that if they attended regularly and paid their dues, then he would open their minds to a whole new way of thinking. During his downtime, he'd occupied himself by contributing psychic predictions about the future in a small section of an L.A. newspaper, which had granted him minor celebrity status. For the next three days, Criswell lingered at the edges of the set, his chin raised, his eyes cast downwards, hands clasped in front of him, the lights from the studio spots occasionally sending a shimmer along the dark sequins on his lapels, and watched intently as the tale of the ghost ship was brought to life. Each time Robeson called cut, the actors would wearily make their way from the set and towards their seats or dressing rooms, hoping that they would not be the one chosen to receive the advice of Criswell. Silently, he would watch them pass before reaching out and placing a hand on the shoulder of Richard Dix or Russell Wade or Lawrence Tierney, or Sir Lancelot, and beg a few moments of their time. Exhausted, they would look to Luton, who urged them silently to indulge their flamboyant consultant, and struggle through fifteen minutes or so of Criswell's advice on how to broaden their extrasensory attitude, or of how to more visibly attune themselves to visiting psychic energies around the set, of which he assured them all there were many. 
Finally, on day three, Sid Rogel made his appearance to check on the progress of the shoot and to meet their psychic consultant. Luton, who was by now as fatigued by the interjections of Criswell as anyone else on the set, quickly brought Rogel and Criswell together, hustling them into a spare office on the side of the building and wishing them well in their newfound acquaintance. For almost two hours, the Ghost Ship production team enjoyed its first real peace in several days. Smiles of relief began to appear on the faces of the actors, and three entire scenes were filmed without a hitch. It was almost evening by the time that Sid Rogel appeared from the office door, followed silently by Criswell, his chin still raised aloft, hands still clasped in front of him. Rogel, on the other hand, carried the expression of a man beleaguered. His eyes, haunted and aghast, were set above dark circles, his cheeks pale and hollow, his lips dry and stammering slightly. He passed Luton swiftly and made for the door, and for the warmth of the Hollywood evening outside, to rejuvenate his fractured soul with fresh air and the fortifying power of silence. Satisfied that Roger would now leave them to work in peace, Criswell's services were quietly dispensed with, and work was allowed to continue without interruption. The next time that Val Luton and Mark Robson saw Criswell was on television in 1950, when he appeared fronting his own show on Channel 13 KLAC entitled Criswell Predicts. It involved nothing more than the dapper, bequiffed Criswell they remembered, seated at a desk and making predictions about the fate of humanity. The series was enough of a hit to spawn a mild case of Criswell mania in America, which saw the eccentric psychic turning up on a variety of chat shows to give his predictions to the public. Through these appearances, he made predictions that included that education would be given to children in pill form, that nine out of ten dogs who feel themselves viewed as second-class citizens when compared to pedigree dogs would rise up and demand pedigree status so as not to feel prejudiced against, that the establishment of homosexual-only cities in Boston, Des Moines, Philadelphia, Dallas, and Miami would be quickly followed by the ordering of government-sponsored orgies there. That an aphrodisiacal era would befall the Earth between May 1st, 1988 and March 30th, 1999, causing mass incest and bestiality among normally conservative people. That in June 1989, a fairground in Denver, Colorado, would be struck by a mysterious ray from outer space, which would turn the Ferris wheel there to rubber resulting in huge loss of life. That by 1980, New York would have disappeared into the sea. That between November and December of 1980, all males in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, would suddenly become cannibals. And that all these things would take place very soon, for the end of the world would come on August 18, 1999, the date that a large black rainbow would encircle the earth and suck away all the oxygen, suffocating every man, woman and child and bringing to an end life as we know it. As if things couldn't get weirder, the amazing Criswell, as he was now known, was by now wed to a former burlesque dancer named Halo Meadows, who led behind her at all times a large poodle that she believed was the reincarnated soul of her cousin Thomas. Griswell was also by now best friends with actress Mae West, 
In fact, one of his predictions regarding her fate was that by 1970, she would be elected as President of the United States, and that within two years of taking office, she, Criswell, and George Liberace, brother of the flamboyant showman, would ride in a rocket to the moon. So delighted was she at these predictions that she put the amazing Criswell on the payroll as her personal psychic, recording a tribute song for him entitled Criswell Predicts. Turned on my television to Lucky Channel 13 Tuned in Mr. Criswell, he sure was on the beam With his predictions, with his convictions Of what the future will be And it made a lot of sense to me and then sold him her fleet of luxury cars one by one for five dollars each. Criswell predicts many things in the future. But despite these fantastic predictions, it was director Ed Wood who provided Criswell with everlasting notoriety when he gave him the task of delivering the prologue to his most famous movie, Plan 9 from Outer Space, a task that the amazing Criswell performed with style. Greetings, my friend. We are all interested in the future, for that is where you and I are going to spend the rest of our lives. And remember, my friend, future events such as these will affect you in the future. You are interested in the unknown, the mysterious, the unexplainable. That is why you are here. And now, for the first time, we are bringing to you the full story of what happened on that fateful day. We are giving you all the evidence based only on the secret testimony of the miserable souls who survived this terrifying ordeal. The incidents, the places. My friend, we cannot keep this a secret any longer. Let us punish the guilty. Let us reward the innocent. My friend, can your heart stand the shocking facts about Grave robbers from outer space. Incredibly, the amazing Criswell did make one prediction that not only came uncannily true, but also rejuvenated the public's waning patience for a man who seemed more famous for getting things wrong than right. In March of 1963, the amazing Criswell appeared on the Jack Parr program, where he made the prediction that President John F. Kennedy would not run for re-election in 1964, as a grave misfortune would befall him in November of 1963. Perhaps the dark expression on Sid Rogel's face that day in the studio had been put there by talk of dogs demanding unions, at the thought of his beloved Des Moines becoming the orgy capital of the United States, or by the prospect of his turning cannibal for an entire month in 1980. Maybe the prospect of a rubber Ferris wheel was too much for his systematic mind to absorb, but whatever the specific reason, thanks to his afternoon spent at the mercy of the amazing Criswell, Sid Rogel did not bother Val Luton or his team again for the rest of the shoot on the ghost ship. In that respect, at least, the amazing Criswell had finally gotten something right. The ghost ship represents something of a shift in Val Luton's way of thinking. Cat people had been built upon Luton's love of folklore. The seventh victim had practically acted as a poem to Luton's beloved Greenwich Village. Each of his stories so far had contained small odes to times fondly remembered in Luton's life. 
but there were no such love notes to be found in the ghost ship. Being constantly harassed by Lou Ostro and being put under mounting pressure by Charles Kerner had driven Luton to turn his opinions on authority into art. Captain Stone, the master of the ship the Altair, was an amalgam of each frustration faced by Luton since his arrival in the movie business. Stone is a man who forces unreasonable tasks upon his men and who refuses to accept the blame when these tasks cannot be fulfilled. He's a man who attacks those who question his authority. Authority cannot be questioned. That's crazy talk. Well, I never felt more sane in my life than I do at this moment. Who's crazy? You who defied me and are helpless? Or I who control your destiny and the destiny of the Altair and all the lives on board? I wish bounds. I wish the crew could see what I see now, could hear you talk. You think I'm insane? Yes, and they would too if they could see you now, raving and ranting. I'm captain. As long as I wear these stripes, there isn't a man in the crew that'll believe you or help you. You'll find them too lazy, too cowardly, too disinterested. Captain Stone is a man who believes religiously in his own power, even to the point of being unreasonable. Those who defy him are subject to his revenge. And in a sheer act of brazen mockery, Luton portrays Stone's self-belief in his own infallibility as the deciding factor in his descent into lunacy. That's what I want you to learn, Miriam. Men are worthless cattle, and a few men are given authority to drive them. You can't prove that to me even with a gun, Captain. I know people aren't that way. They're good, kind. They help each other. It's only hard to get them to understand. I'll give you a chance to make them understand. You go out there. Go any place you want on board ship. Talk to them. See if you can get them to help you. See if they'll stand up with you against authority. Or even your friend Sparks won't help you. Go ahead. Get out. Try and get help against me. Try. 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 The ghost ship, for the first time in Luton's RKO filmography, was not built upon the dream of a more pleasant time, but constructed around a veiled attack on the constraints placed upon him by the studio he'd saved from bankruptcy. It therefore carries a more mean-spirited tone than any film before it. The sense of dread is clear from the start, when a blind street musician issues the fresh-faced Merriam with a warning about the ill-fated ship he's about to board. Merriam's place on board has only been made possible by the mysterious death of his predecessor. His first meeting with Captain Stone seems genial enough. Merriam's welcomed aboard by Stone in an almost fatherly way. The captain is warm and promises friendship and conversation, along with a ship founded on a supportive atmosphere of camaraderie. But before long, cracks have appeared in this veneer of warmth. Stone has begun to talk of his authority in alarming terms. It is also Luton's most explicit film so far in terms of physical violence. Subtle chills and mounting tension are here too, but consider the film's four most notable set pieces, and it's clear that subtleties and suggestion had been diluted by a sense of mild savagery and anger. 
The first of these scenes is the famous hook sequence, where the men are thrown aside and scattered by the thrashing of the rebellious cargo hook, which is being caught in the breath of a growling storm. Look out! John, John, you men there! Get in and get that hook! Make fast as in. I'll pass it around the hook. Put a stopper on that hook, Mr. Miller. It is perhaps Luton's first real action scene, where desperate men must summon up their wits and fling themselves again and again at a wayward danger in order to bring it under control. With each swing of the hook, a very real threat is felt, as though the blade of a knife is being waved in the viewer's face. The second of these sequences depicts an emergency appendix removal at sea, Captain Stone, holding the scalpel millimeters above a clean patch of skin, is being talked through the operation by a crackled voice on the radio. Altair to Panama. We are ready. Panama to Altair. Captain Stone will bring his right hand to the point which we have already established as the region of the appendix. Place the point of the scalpel exactly on this spot. The boat rocks from side to side. The scalpel hovers above the skin, ready to make its first incision. Pearls of sweat begin to form at the captain's brow. Is this what he meant earlier when he referred to having rights over the men's lives? It is a tense, queasy scene, made worse by the captain's fracturing sanity, and also by the words of the men around him who urge him to make the first cut but find themselves slowly frightened by the captain's obvious panic. Have you made the incision? Panama to Altair. Have you made the incision? The third sequence sees Louis, the seaman who complained to the captain, working in the anchor chamber as the heavy chain is being lowered by a shrilling winch into the room. Captain Stone walks past the door outside and accidentally, or maybe not, shuts the door on Louis and locks it. The chain almost a foot thick and made entirely of giant steel links that fall in the chamber with a deafening clatter, begins to fill the room as Louis screams for help. The crew on deck, oblivious to the plight of Louis due to the screaming chain as it rushes from the sea, do not realize that their comrade is being slowly crushed to death below their feet. It is Miriam who discovers Louis's body, or what's left of it, when he flings open the door and recoils in sheer terror at the sight he finds there. Death is so absolute. You looked into the chain locker? No more Louis. No more insolent remarks. No more danger to the discipline of the ship. You didn't like him? Of course I didn't like him. He was a sea lawyer full of windy complaints, seasoned with bad comedy. So you shut the hatch? Shut the hatch? What do you mean, Mr. Miriam? The hatch was shut, and I think it was locked. You accuse me of doing this out of spite because the man was insubordinate? This is what you meant when you said you had rights over the lives of the crew. You murdered him. You're a little hasty, Mr. Miriam. You can't expect me just to stand by and watch you kill a man. What do you propose to do? Denounce me? The corpse in the chamber remains completely hidden. But Luton's dark patched theory, directed with devastating skill by Mark Robson, applies itself well through the scene's build-up. We see the size of the chain. We observe the violence with which it's dropped to the chamber floor. Louis's body is not seen by the eye, but it is most certainly seen by the mind. The fourth sequence displays an entirely new Luton sensibility at work. 
The film climaxes with the now-deranged Captain Stone attempting to murder a gagged and bound Merriam with a knife in his cabin. Before he can carry out his grisly killing, he's interrupted by Polo, a mute sailor whose inner monologues have acted as a kind of narrator through the film so far. Polo and the captain struggle in the darkness, each brandishing their knives, and each realizing that the only way out of the room is if one man kills the other. The light is smashed as they fight. The room is thrown into a kind of twilight. For a moment, it is not clear which man has the upper hand. The only other sounds are the creaking of the boat around them as it's tossed by the waves, the grunting of a helpless Merriam, and the merry shanty of Sir Lancelot's Calypso song being sung on the deck above them. The combined elements make for a disorientating set piece that culminates with Captain Stone freeing his hand and about to plunge his knife into the heart of Polo. The only way to prevent Stone from murdering him is for Polo to grab at the blade as it rushes towards his heart and hold it in his hand. The act is shown in excruciatingly violent detail, the blade clasped in Polo's hand slicing into the man's flesh and causing copious bleeding. This was new territory not just for a Val Luton film, where violence and savagery had been merely hinted at in previous entries, but for films in general, where such focus on the details of violence were never quite so explicitly portrayed. The result is that the viewer is made to feel the bite of the blade as it wrenches aggressively inside the hand of Polo, making for a violent reaction quite unfamiliar to the cinema of Luton thus far. As for the film itself, the story is one of the more accessible in Luton's horror catalogue, a slowly mounting suspense drama that can be enjoyed as a standard B-movie thriller, or, if one wishes to dig deeper, a metaphorical study on the corruption of power and the madness of entrusting absolute authority to a chosen few. The Ghost Ship is also perhaps the most subversive use of an RKO horror title by Val Luton. Each entry before this had contained a literal explanation of its name. Cat People had contained Cat People. I Walked with a Zombie did contain a zombie with whom the protagonist journeyed out to walk. The Leopard Man did actually contain a character associated with leopards, and the seventh victim's seventh victim wound up being the doomed Jacqueline. The Ghost Ship, however, is an entirely metaphorical title. There are no ghosts to be found here. Instead, Luton's take on the title is explained by Edith Barrett's character to be a vessel driven by men who have alienated themselves by insisting that their authority is absolute. And so you're dreadfully disappointed and dreadfully hurt. The whole world seems to have turned against you just because you made a mistake. I didn't make a mistake. That's almost the captain's voice, Tom. I didn't make a mistake. I couldn't make a mistake. I'm authority. I'm the captain. I'm the third officer. I've heard it all so often, but it's all so wrong. You're just like the Captain Tom. Lonely, austere, bitter, without family or friends. Condemning yourself to a bloodless, ghost-like existence. And in the end, it will be only a ghost ship you'll command. One wonders if Charles Kerner, or Lou Ostro, or Sid Rogel, or to a lesser extent, David O. Selznick, watched the film 
and felt an uncomfortable prickling somewhere against the neck. Upon its release, the film was as equally scorned as it was lauded by American critics. Many critics pointed disparagingly at the film's title, noting that only half of it was true, while many others made mention of the fact that the film seemed more intent on creating a morbid atmosphere, fueled by out-of-control male testosterone, albeit soaked in a good deal of suspense. Film Daily wrote that, Very much befogged, the ghost ship will have no easy time of it making port. The film would have benefited much had there been more action and less gab. The best thing about the production is the sense of mystery that hangs over the freighter on which the story is laid. But others were more perceptive. Manny Farber for The New Republic stated that Luton's study of masculinity, along with Robeson's acute direction, were fast establishing them as a creative team rivaled only by Luton and Jacques Tourneur. The notoriously hard-to-please Bosley Crowther, The New York Times, a formerly outspoken critic of both Luton and his films, called it a nice little package of morbidity, all wrapped around in gloom. James Agee, perhaps the most respected and influential film critic in America at the time, wrote of Luton that few people in Hollywood show in their work that they know or care half as much about movies or human beings as he does. Audience response was positive. In fact, it would be fair to say that the box office response was nothing short of remarkable. Perhaps it was the fact that a new RKO horror had finally seen the light of day against so many rival studio copycats. Perhaps the old belief that people love a macabre story at Christmas was true. For whatever reason, the tills at cinemas were sent ringing wildly by the arrival of the ghost ship. RKO executives looked on in delight, as did Luton and his team, proud of the success they'd achieved in such modest a time span. Hopes and spirits were high. The mood was one of celebration. Val Luton was on top of the world. And then, several weeks after the movie's release, everything changed. Luton found himself summoned to a meeting in Charles Kerner's office and arrived to find not just Kerner himself there, but a fleet of RKO lawyers who did not greet him as he entered. Luton studied the grim faces that regarded him. This gives me an idea for a movie, he said. Jury of the Damned. Sit down, Val, Kerner said. I'm going to ask you a question and I want an honest answer. Luton raised his eyebrows as he took his seat. The last time he'd heard that sentence used was when Aunt Nazimova had questioned him about a broken rose bush. Okay, he said. Shoot. Where did you get the story for the ghost ship? For a moment he wondered if the lawyers were all there to represent Kerner himself, that the underlying theme he'd planted in the story, the insanity and incompetence of authority, had somehow offended Kerner or someone else on high. But as quickly as the thought had entered his head, so had it disappeared. Any vague implication regarding Luton's feelings towards his bosses could easily be explained away or dismissed. It came from my head, of course, Luton said. You're sure about that? Kerner said, leaning forward and fixing his eyes on Luton's. 
because if that isn't true, if it was in any way influenced by outside sources, then now is the time to tell us, Val. Luton chuckled and frowned. He looked at each man before him, at the scrutiny in each pair of eyes, and felt his smile disintegrate. What the hell is this all about? A few weeks after the release of the ghost ship, the RKO legal department had received notice that they were to be sued for plagiarism by lawyers representing Norbert Faulkner and Samuel R. Golding, a pair of playwrights who'd submitted to Luton's office back in early 1943 a copy of their play, A Man and His Shadow, which had played in December of 1942 at the Pasadena Playhouse for a single performance. Faulkner and Golding had hoped that Luton would see some value in their story and buy the story rights with a view to adapting it for the screen. Their statement told of how they'd received their script back just before the summer. It had been opened, most likely by someone at Luton's offices. The writers were now dismayed to discover that soon after receiving it back, Luton and his team had gone into production on a movie called The Ghost Ship, which bore startling similarities to the script they'd sent to his offices. It was the viewpoint of the authors and of their legal counsel that Luton, in search of a viable story idea, had read their story and had decided to adapt it without their permission or without proper reimbursement or credit to them. This action, in the opinion of the author's legal counsel, constituted a clear case of plagiarism and RKO was being sued for $50,000. A writ had also been issued demanding that until the case was settled, the ghost ship was to be pulled from theatres and prevented from exhibition. Luton listened to the charges laid against him and stared, half amused, at the faces before him. This has to be a joke, right? No, Val, this is far from a joke, said Kerner sternly. This is insanity, Luton said. Pure insanity. You think I need a couple of hacks to mail in script ideas for me? I have a billion stories up here. He tapped his head forcefully and stood up. Coming up with the stories isn't the problem. It's making them interesting enough to care about. It's turning them into films that I would want to watch. We can make the problem go away, said the lawyer nearest to Kerner. He pointed to a typed sheet on Kerner's desk. Luton snatched it up and read it. They're willing to settle, he said. Seven hundred dollars, said Kerner. Seven hundred dollars and it all goes away. The ghost ship can stay at theatres. Life goes on. Life will not go on, Luton snapped. People will think I'm a man who steals stories from nobodies and then pays them hush money when he's found out. I have some pride, gentlemen, and this is extortion. It's not even flattering extortion. Seven hundred dollars, for God's sake. You're telling me that a room full of smart men like you can't see when you're being blackmailed. If these hustlers had any kind of case against me, then why are they settling for seventy times less? You receive unsolicited scripts, said the lawyer. Everyone receives them, Luton barked. So why open them? Because, said Luton. That is the traditional way of finding out what is inside an envelope. I think we all need to calm down here, said Kerner. Val, if you say you didn't draw ideas from their script, Charles, I have never laid eyes upon their script. Until this moment, I was completely unaware of its existence. Okay, okay, said Kerner. And you don't want to settle this. 
Settling for 700 will be as bad as admitting guilt, said Luton. I have nothing to hide and therefore nothing to fear. Let it go to court. The lawyers glanced between themselves. I believe in justice, said Luton, and I refuse to believe that a court of law would fail to see that I am innocent, and the innocent always prevail. One of the lawyers stifled a sharp bark of laughter. That's a very naive viewpoint, Kana said. If you want to fight this, then okay, we'll fight it. But you should know one thing, Val. It's a lesson that you of all people should have learned through the stories you've told so far. The innocent also suffer. It was on the eve of the court case that Nina Luton, Val's mother, received a letter from her son. Dear Mother, A plagiarism case on the ghost ship is to be tried tomorrow, and although the plaintiffs are obviously wrong and have no merit in their case, it's the kind of racketeering which is very hard to guard against, and we all have to be very much on our toes in the courtroom, or the case may go against us despite the most obvious sort of innocence. The studio wanted to settle out of court, as the plaintiffs are suing for $50,000 but were willing to settle for $700. I refused as I have a deep-seated moral feeling that such persons should not be allowed to get away with their little practices, even if it is much more convenient to let them get away with it. It will cost the studio and myself three or four times as much to defend as to settle, but I feel it's a small price to pay for a really clear name. The following morning, the case of Norbert Faulkner and Samuel Golding versus RKO and Val Luton began to decide whether or not Val Luton's name would be cleared or tainted forevermore by dishonor. Representing Golding and Faulkner was Harold Fendler, a boyish-looking 40-year-old with small, dark eyes and white teeth who resembled the young Ronald Reagan and who took every opportunity to smile earnestly at the jury. On Luton's side, a veritable platoon of RKO's finest legal minds, headed by Guy Nupp and Herman Selvin, two sturdy men with receding hair and small glasses, who frowned and grunted to each other in whispers. Fendler was the first to address the court. Ladies and gentlemen, I'd like to tell you a story about Samuel R. Golding and Norbert Faulkner, he said, motioning to the two men at his desk who wore the expressions of two widowed bloodhounds. Here you see two well-established writers who collaborated in writing a play entitled A Man and His Shadow. They neither published it nor dedicated it to the public, and it was not copyrighted. It was produced just once at the Pasadena Playhouse at around Christmas 1942. Now, the life of a playwright is a frugal one. Many months can be spent in creating a story, writing several drafts of the story, and then polishing it like a fine jewel until you have something rare and precious, a piece of yourself. In this case, an invaluable piece of two men. For the following months, these two creators worked to bring their story to life for an audience. Six months' work earned them a single night at a theatre which, due to poor marketing, was ill-attended. Both lost money, 
it was Christmas, and after almost a year of work, all the two men had to show for their 1942 was a hole in their bank accounts and the prospect of a frugal 1943. In desperation, they made a plan. They would send their story, A Man and His Shadow, to a few movie studios in Hollywood, in the hopes that their year would not have been spent in vain. Fendler bit his lip and frowned sympathetically. He cast a long gaze over to the two men whose eyes were downcast. Not wanting to present merely a staging script, they both spent yet another month of their lives transforming their story into a screenplay so as to save the studios a little time. Now, one of the studios they submitted to was RKO Radio Pictures and to Val Luton, a producer there. Luton retained the manuscript for about six weeks. At that time, according to the evidence we shall present, Luton was looking for a story with the action on board a ship in order to utilize an old movie set which was available and standing empty. Now, RKO and Val Luton admit access to the play in that a copy of it was in the custody of Luton for some time. Now, that's important. He held up a finger and met each of the jurors' eyes. I intend to prove to you today that Val Luton, on behalf of RKO, used without permission the story sent in by my clients. He did this willingly and knowingly. Not just that, but he failed shamefully, to credit or reimburse my clients for their 13 months of work. I know that once we've presented our case, you'll agree. He smiled at them, nodded at the judge, and then returned to his seat. The squat figure of Herman Selvin, squinting through small round glasses, rose from his seat and sighed as he approached the jury. Ladies and gentlemen, he murmured, removing his glasses and polishing them with his handkerchief. No evidence that the respondents present today will be able to convince anyone of plagiarism because plagiarism in this case cannot possibly exist. The plaintiffs here have developed an unprotectable plot into, as they believe, an original play entitled to protection under copyright law. The protection extends, however, only to its details, sequence of events, and manner of expression and treatment. I refer to the case of Barsha versus Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer, which enacted such a ruling. Therefore, even if the respondents do manage to convince that Mr. Luton took the play, then he's taken nothing of its expression and development, to which alone plaintiffs can claim a superior right. Thank you. Selvin coughed into his fist, squinted at the jury and ambled back to his seat. Luton, watching from his seat, frowned. He watched Fendler lean across to his clients and say something in a low voice that seemed to make them both smile. Over the course of the next few hours, the play A Man and His Shadow was read, line by line, to the jury. It's told the tale of a pleasure cruise, which is blighted by the unhinged actions of the ship's captain, who in the final third is revealed to be an imposter who killed the real captain before they set sail. One of the ship's passengers suspects the truth and is stalked and threatened by the insane captain. When this was done, a portable screen was erected at the front of the courtroom, the curtains were drawn, the lights were put out, and the ghost ship was screened for this most attentive of audiences. Mark Robeson, seated next to Luton, leaned across as the film ended and whispered, They're two different stories. What the hell is this case even about? How can they hope to win? Doesn't matter what the outcome is, Luton said. If they win, they get paid. If we win, their play will be notorious. 
Every producer in the country will want it. It's easy to gamble everything on the roll of a dice when you have nothing to lose. Fendler strode confidently to the front of the courtroom, fixing his audience with his most confident smile. Well, he said, I don't think there can be seriously any doubt after seeing the film and hearing the play that the similarities are startling. Let's consider them all, shall we? They're both set on boats, whispered Robson. That's about it. The action of each takes place on a ship, Fendler began. Only one person aboard these ships suspects the captain of being a murderer. In both stories, this man accuses the captain who neither admits or denies the accusation. The captain, sure of his authority, informs the accuser that he's free to try and convince anyone on board ship of the truth of his suspicions. The passenger tells his story to the first mate and to others on the ship, but they refuse to believe him and instead suspect the passenger of hallucinations or malice. Finally, however, the captain becomes aware that he is suspected by at least one other person, and he threatens to kill or does kill that person as an intermeddler. Knowledge that his murders are about to be uncovered causes him to lose his mind and brings about his own undoing and death. Fendler handed the floor to Selvin so that he could present a reply. First off, Selvin said, the action of Mr. Luton's script takes place not upon a pleasure cruise, but a freighter. That's significant. Luton frowned and waited for Selvin's reasoning, which did not come. What you have to remember here, ladies and gentlemen, is that we are making a very unreasonable comparison between these two properties. We are standing them alongside each other and scrutinizing them in order to find similarities. Of course there'll be similarities in some instances. They're both melodramas set on ships. If dissection of a story's elements rather than observation is necessary to determine how similar they are, then copyright infringement is unwarranted. Luton felt himself breathe. The point was a good one. But further than that, he wanted Selvin to press the point that he was not aware of their story in the first place. But Selvin, it appeared, was done for the moment and took his seat once more. Samuel Golding was called to testify first. He recounted first the work that had led up to the sending of the play to Luton's office. Mr. Golding, said Fendler, have you ever met Val Luton? Yes, I have, said Golding. He glanced up at Luton, who looked at Robeson in alarm. I've never met him in my life, said Luton. Where was this? asked Fendler. At the RKO commissary, Golding replied. Mr. Faulkner and I approached him at lunch one afternoon with a view to finding out what he thought of our story. And would you mind relating, Fendler continued, the details of the conversation you had with Mr. Luton? Herman Selvin and the RKO lawyers turned around to glance at Luton, who shook his head in horror. This is bullshit, he said a little too loudly. The judge struck his gavel, which sent a sharp snap around the walls of the court. There will be no outbursts during testimony, he barked. Wait your turn. Please continue, Mr. Golding, Fendler said. Well, I asked him if he thought a man and his shadow was any good for one of his pictures. I even suggested that it wouldn't have to take place on a pleasure yacht. I suggested that if he wanted to, he could relocate the story to a freighter and have an ordinary captain heading an ordinary crew. He responded by saying that all that mattered was the captain. This is a lie. Luton said under his breath. He clenched his fists in his lap. 
So, by the contents of this conversation, said Fendler, it was pretty clear that Mr. Luton had read your play. Yes, that's right, said Golding. He glanced for a second at Luton, but could not keep his eyes there. Thank you, Mr. Golding, said Fendler. I would now like to call Mr. Faulkner. Norbert Faulkner took the stand and was asked about the meeting in the RKO commissary. He stated that the meeting had taken place as Golding had described it. Did the matter of buying your play ever come up? asked Fendler. Yes, replied Faulkner. Before we left, Mr. Golding asked Mr. Luton if he'd like to buy our play. And what was Mr. Luton's reply? Luton felt himself stiffen in his seat. Faulkner fixed his eyes upon him and, unlike his partner, did not look away as he spoke. Mr. Luton said, Well, Golding, I don't have to buy my stories. I don't have to lay out money for originals. I get my idea and I call in a couple of writers on the lot and I make my stories that way. We took this to mean that he wasn't going to pay us a penny for the play. Luton shook his head and covered his mouth with his hands. Inside his chest, his heart began to speed like a drum roll. And how soon afterwards did you receive back your opened manuscript? Fendler asked. It was about three days later, Faulkner stated. Thank you, Mr. Faulkner. You may take your seat once more. Over the next day, Luton awaited his chance to refute the claims, as the argument in the courtroom raged. It had been proved conclusively that Faulkner and Golding's script had been sent to RKO, and that it had been opened and returned. This, along with the supposed conversation held between the three men in the RKO commissary, had all but confirmed that Luton had stolen the men's idea. Selvin argued valiantly that proof of access to the script proved opportunity to copy, rather than actual copying itself. But for each stone cast by Luton's defense team, Fendler would cast back two more along with that confident smile, which seemed to relish this chance to grandstand on so prominent a platform. The story elements of the ghost ship matched all but exactly with that of a man in his shadow. Luton had access to the script. According to the plaintiffs, a conversation had been held in which Luton admitted reading their play and had no intention of reimbursing them for it. Against this evidence, Selvin was powerless. His only remaining option was to call Luton to answer the charges personally. He made his way to the witness stand, his pulse almost blurred, his breath coming in sharp stabs. At the stand, he took the oath and seated himself, and watched as Herman Selvin approached, grimacing through his coin-sized spectacles. Mr. Luton, how many unsolicited scripts do you receive each day? I have no idea, said Luton. Rough guess. I literally have no idea. I don't tend to read my mail. And why is that? Because I'm too busy. Thank you, said Selvin. You are too busy. You see, Mr. Fendler seems to be under the impression that a producer as wrapped up in his work as you has several hours each day during which he opens and reads thoroughly every piece of mail sent to his office. How often do you read your mail, Mr. Luton? I never read any mail. Who does that for you? My secretary. Does she also read the unsolicited scripts sent to your office? No, she does not. And why is that, Mr. Luton? Luton stared at Faulkner and Golding. Because she's under strict instructions to keep my office free from trash. Objection, called Fendler. Mr. Luton is, through insinuation, attempting to disparage the work of my clients. 
Sustained, called the judge. Luton shrugged. Mr. Luton, said Selvin, how did you come up with the story for the ghost ship? My boss, Charles Kerner, told me to write a story set on a ship because we had a spare ship set that wasn't being used. He also supplied me with the title, The Ghost Ship. Mr. Luton, do you remember receiving a script known as A Man and His Shadow by Samuel R. Golding and Norbert Faulkner? No, said Luton, I do not. Well then, do you remember meeting Mr. Faulkner or Mr. Golding as they stated at the RKO commissary? No, I've never met these men in my life. Selvin smiled. And so, Mr. Luton, are you saying that the conversation they claimed took place there never happened? I'm saying exactly that, Luton said. I've never spoken to these men about anything. Selvin nodded. Thank you. He returned to his seat and began to confer with his team. Fendler stood slowly and approached, and as he did so, he began to smile. Mr. Luton, I'm curious about your creative process, he said. You say that you were given the film's title before you started writing the story, is that right? Correct. The ghost ship, Fendler said dramatically. It kind of conjures up the image of a haunted vessel on the seas, doesn't it? Almost like the Flying Dutchman. Luton shrugged. I was just curious, said Fendler. Could you perhaps explain why, seeing as how you were given a title like The Ghost Ship, you created a script about a murderous captain and not one about a haunted ship? Luton glanced at Robeson, who smiled. I tend to do that, said Luton. My superiors seem to think that a title should come first and have, in the past, attempted to influence the story of the film that I'm about to make by supplying me with a title designed to govern the plot I write. I like to subvert this whenever possible. Fendler frowned and crossed to his desk. He peered down at a piece of paper, running a finger along a line of text. Cat People was your first movie at RKO, is that right? Yes. A film about a woman who turns into a cat, a cat person. That's correct. This was followed by I Walked With a Zombie. Now tell me, did that film include a zombie? And did it also include a scene where a character walks with a zombie? Yes, it did. The Leopard Man, Fendler sighed. Did that film contain a leopard man? Well, technically, that was the stage name given to one of the minor characters. Yes or no, Mr. Luton? Yes, and The Seventh Victim. Good movie, I saw it myself. Did the film revolve around a character who was to become the seventh victim of a group of devil worshippers? Luton looked towards the RKO lawyers, who each wore a haunted expression. That is correct, he said. Fendler rolled his eyes. So, in actual fact, you haven't really subverted much of anything when it comes to movie titles until now. And you are asking us to believe that while my client's script was lying in your office, a script that contained a story about the captain of a ship who goes insane and commits murder, you were coincidentally coming up with the same idea based on the title The Ghost Ship. My story is about a man whose sense of authority corrupts him. A simple yes or no, Mr. Luton. Yes, Luton snapped. I never read your client's script. Fendler grinned broadly. Thank you, he said. 
I have nothing further. He walked slowly back to his seat and whispered to Golding, who smiled. The judge dismissed Luton. It took him a moment to collect himself before he rose and walked back to his seat, his body shaking from the unfamiliar cocktail of anger and adrenaline that rushed around his veins. He dropped into his seat and felt Robeson's hand on his shoulder. Herman Selvin argued passionately in his summation upon the folly of punishing a creative mind. It was apparent that both stories were similar, but the premise itself was a hackneyed one anyway. If Luton was to be punished for having come up with the story of a ship's captain gone mad, then surely Faulkner and Golding should be punished also, for the premise had arisen first in the story of Captain Bly in Mutiny on the Bounty and in Wolf Larsen and Humphrey Van Weyden in The Sea Wolf. He ended by pointing out once again the glaring differences in each story's plot and concluded with the statement, I can see nothing but differences. Therefore, plagiarism cannot possibly exist. Fendler's closing statement was more concise. This was not a case to decide who made best use of the mad captain trope. It was merely to decide if Val Luton had stolen the idea submitted to him by his clients. It was to expose the fact that he'd neither given them credit nor offered reimbursement for their time. That is why the case had been called. You've heard my clients state that Mr. Luton held a conversation in which he acknowledged receipt of their story and refused to buy it, having full knowledge of the story's details. He then went on to produce a film based on the same premise. Mr. Luton says that this is not true. Who you believe is up to you, but let me once again state the known facts. Facts that are undisputed on both sides. My clients wrote a story called A Man and His Shadow, all about a ship's captain who goes mad. The story was definitely sent to Mr. Luton's office. The story was sent back to my clients having been opened. A few months later, Mr. Luton produces a film called The Ghost Ship, which tells an almost identical story. These are the facts. They are undisputed. Now I ask you to draw your own conclusions based on this evidence, and I hope that you will help me to give this rather tragic story a happy ending. It took the jury just one hour to reach their unanimous verdict. In their opinion, Val Luton had indeed stolen the story from Faulkner and Golding, and although the two plots did not match entirely, a clear case of plagiarism had taken place. RKO were ordered to pay the legal costs amounting to $5,000, plus damages to Golding and Faulkner in the amount of $25,000. The ghost ship was to be withdrawn immediately from release. All future booking residuals were also lost, along with the rights to sell the film for airing on television. Because of the plagiarism suit, the ghost ship would not be seen by audiences for the next 50 years, when the copyright to the film finally ran out and it entered the public domain, where the arguments about its heritage no longer mattered to audiences several generations away from a Los Angeles courtroom, where once upon a time, a man's heart was broken for all the world to see. It has since been called Luton's forgotten masterpiece by modern critics, 
who marvel at length at the film's accessibility, at its unorthodox plot structure, at the claustrophobic madness on the uneven waves, as the dark of the ocean beneath the ship begins to slowly grow like ivy across the hearts of the men who sail upon her. It has variously been described as a cinematic revelation, a nightmarish walk into madness, and containing a depth of artistry not usually seen in cinema. At a Val Luton retrospective held at West Houston Street, Manhattan in 1993, such was the furore created by the first screening of the film in 50 years that it ended up being exhibited 42 times in one week. I Walked with a Zombie, being screened at the same event, was shown a mere 10 times, while Cat People was shown only 8. But despite today's reverential appraisal of the film, for Val Luton, the thought of his adventure onto the waters was a source of pain. As Golding, Faulkner and Fendler celebrated the court's decision, Robson, who'd spent the last several minutes stunned by the news, turned to Luton, only to find his seat empty. For the next few weeks, Val Luton was simply unreachable. Calls to his home were answered by Ruth, who told inquiring minds that her husband was not available. Callers to his door, including close friends such as Mark Robson and Alan Napier, were held at the threshold and told that Val needs some time. Even Charles Kerner, always desperate for Luton and his team to be working on something, gave Luton his space. The court's decision had sent shockwaves through the studio. Nobody there believed for a moment that Val Luton, a man seemingly born to the earth with a God-given gift for conjuring stories, would have needed to steal one from a pile of envelopes. Even RKO's rivals, among them Luton's former boss, David Oselznick, would not believe that Luton was a thief. In response to the Luton court case, RKO altered its policy. All mail not marked as confidential was to be opened by its mail room before it was distributed to its various departments. All unsolicited scripts were destroyed without being read, and notices were sent out, actively discouraging would-be writers from sending in their work. And so an uneasy few weeks passed while the dust settled, and while the fractured heart of Val Luton slowly set about its own repair in silence. It would perhaps have taken a little longer than usual, had it not been for a visitor to the house. The door to his office was opened one afternoon, where the visitor found him silently regarding the keys of his typewriter. Vladimir, said his aunt, Nazimova. He looked slowly up and smiled, but it was an empty smile, one in which his eyes remained drawn and dark. He made to stand up, but she motioned for him to stay seated. No, sit down, she said firmly. I want to ask you a question. I want honest answer. You know, the last time you said that, I'd just broken your rose bush. He wiped his eyes and sighed. Seems like I'll never stop being ten years old. Did you copy this men's story, said Nazimova. Luton glared up at her angrily. What do you think? I am asking you the question, she said. Did you copy this man's story? No, of course I didn't. Then why are you acting like a guilty man, she said. 
sitting in here as though you have been scolded, as though you have been found out. I'm not acting like a guilty man. I'm acting like a man who's had his pocket picked by a couple of crooks. I'm acting like a man whose dignity and reputation is in tatters. So go back to work and show the world that you are not a man who needs to steal stupid story from stupid crooks. Money doesn't matter, Vladimir. These men, they have made a pocket full of money, but it will not bring them joy. And the only way to stop your reputation from being dragged along in the mud is to go back to work and punch the nose of anyone who calls you a liar. Luton clenched his jaw and ran his fingers along the keys of his typewriter. Every time I write a story now, people will think I stole it. Nazimova laughed. <laughs> How can they think such a thing of your stories? Your stories are pizdets. Weird. He looked up at her. Vladimir, she said, cupping his face with her hand. No one in Hollywood has the imagination of you. Go back and write your stories, and do not make them less, Vladimir. Make them more, Vladimir. Make stories that are more Vladimir and less Hollywood. Then the world will know who writes the stories. He looked up at her dark eyes and felt himself begin to smile. And this time, his eyes lit up with something like the old twinkle. She leaned down and kissed his cheek, then in one swift move, cuffed him across the back of the head. And that is for my rosebush. Since completing directorial duties on the ghost ship, Mark Robeson had been left wondering exactly what to do next. Edward Dimitrik, who'd had a succession of hits including Hitler's Children and Behind the Rising Sun, had been all set to begin directing a social commentary story of juvenile delinquency which was ripped straight from the headlines. But the success of his two latest films had elevated him to the A-list at RKO, and he'd been reassigned to Tender Comrade, a wartime story of women left behind while their husbands are away in the fight. This freed up the director's seat in the juvenile delinquency film, which had then been offered to Robeson. With no Val Luton around to assign him to another project, Robeson had accepted. He'd been further delighted to learn that the screenwriter assigned to him for the film was to be Ardell Ray, who'd now finished work on her entry for the Falcon series. It was as he was leaving the studio that evening that he happened to glance up at Luton's corner office and see that the light was on. Curious, he walked over to the building and made his way up to the office, which was all but deserted. He found Luton at his desk, reading through a thick script bearing his trademark scribbles on the front. Mark, he said as Robeson entered. I heard about the juvie job. Congratulations. How are you? said Robeson. Bruised, smiled Luton. Very bruised. But not entirely beaten. You know that no one believes it, right? said Robeson. Even Lou Ostro thinks you were double-crossed. Dear old Lou, smiled Luton. You know, I always liked him. Robeson pointed to the script. Is that the next one? I finished it last night, said Luton, turning it in his hands. More cat people. All it needs now is a terrible name. 
Robeson laughed and took a seat. I want to know everything about it. You know, said Luton, you're going to be busy on your own film for a while. I'm going to have to do this one without you. I know, said Robeson. But tell me anyway. I like your stories. Crowdfunding is such an ugly word. It implies that you are some kind of noisy, anonymous crowd, which is why I like to credit all the wonderful people who help monthly to make these shows happen as my co-producers. If you'll look at the show notes for this episode, you'll see a little link called Credits. And if you use that link, you'll see that every single person who's taken the time to sign up to become a patron of this show is right there as they should be. As these shows have grown in ambition, so too have they grown in expense. I'm not exaggerating when I say that I literally could not make these shows without you guys. So if you aren't a patron yet, and you feel like spending two minutes to sign up and spread a little joy in the world, then I can make these shows even better and even faster, and I will give you all kinds of rewards for doing so, and you'll be an official co-producer, and it starts from just $1 a month, and I'll buy you an ice cream. To sign up, click the Become a Patron link in the show notes, and thanks to you, I'll be able to keep telling all these stories. Thank you so, so much, and I will hopefully see you there. Let Mysteries at Midnight be your destination for detective whodunits and captivating mystery stories. You'll hear classic stories like Sherlock Holmes, Agatha Christie's Poirot, and short tales from H.G. Wells, Charles Dickens, Edgar Allan Poe, and others. I'm Christopher, and I read these classic stories in the soothing style of a bedtime story, so you can listen to them in bed when you drift off to sleep. Search for Mysteries at Midnight on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favourite podcast app, and follow and subscribe so you don't miss out on new episodes.